0: All right, all right, all right. Has anybody read Green Lights, Uh, Matthew McConaughey's uh, uh, memoir? Kevin has. It's great. I don't know if, as a pastor, I can recommend it, but man, if you want to get the backstory of All Right, All Right, All Right, nobody cares. Okay, we'll move on. (laughs) I loved it. I just listened to it on audiobook this week. It was great. Hey everybody, my name is Marshall. I'm one of the leaders here at the church. And uh, if you're visiting us for the first time, we're glad that you're here. And if you're joining us online, uh, cameras are here and here. Um, it's good to see you, or know, feel you, hope that you're out there somewhere. Um, Before I get into today's sermon, I just want to give a a quick little uh, explanation of prayer at the park because I know that a number of people who are here this morning actually have not been a part of this church for a whole year, so you haven't actually experienced prayer at the park. A a number of years ago, uh, you know, church in the Northwest, is a, it, it, it rolls in sort of cycles and waves. And during the summertime, because we have a three-month window here in the Pacific Northwest to do all of our outdoor activities, um, it's just a time where a lot of people are gone on most weekends. And, uh, and it's, it's, it's like kind of a little bit of a conflict, trying to keep the church machine running with people being gone frequently. And so as we were praying one summer, we started to sense like, well, maybe there's a different way that we can do it. Maybe we can take a collective time of rest together as a church during the month of August. So we, we started praying about it, and we came up with the idea of doing prayer at the park in August. And this is to accomplish two things. Um, The first thing it's meant to accomplish is the idea of Sabbath. We believe that the Bible teaches us as Christians that God has created us to live in rhythms of work and rest and that involves having uh, one day a week that is sort of consecrated as a day that is holy, that is restful, that is set aside for us to be able to replenish and enjoy all the good stuff that God has given us and not focus on productivity. And similarly, as a community, we believe that there's a season that, as a church, we need to dial back and just rest. So we're not canceling church we're doing church in a different way. We're just simply shutting down the machine of Sunday morning, which involves a ton of volunteers and lots of coordination and uh, lots of behind-the-scenes work. And instead, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be going to the park just a block away, and we're going to be focusing on just connecting with each other and praying. And the, the, the second thing that's, that the August Sabbath is set aside for is prayer. As a church, we were birthed out of a prayer meeting back in the late 80s, early 90s, and God spoke to our founding pastors that, if um if we committed to praying for our city and for our neighborhood that god would birth a church out of those prayers and that prayer would always be at the core the center of of our church expression so that's why we emphasize prayer so much we believe that god has called us to not just be a church but to be a praying church specifically so we're gonna go into the park and and if you're new to the idea of praying in small rooms, it's okay it's very low pressure very low key we spend about 20 25 minutes together in smaller groups through a weekly prayer focus that we're we're writing up for this year Um, and it's mostly a time to be able to connect with each other to get to know people that you don't always sit next to uh, to uh, encounter the Holy Spirit in a different setting to let the kids play and then we'll be back in full swing in September so who's excited for prayer at the park all right me too awesome okay so let's sermon time uh, today we are finishing up our series that we've been in uh, for the last few months walking through the Sermon on the Mount We actually started this journey on Easter Sunday And if you remember back to that Sunday, we talked about how the Sermon on the Mount is really a, a, a three-chapter power-packed description of what God's kingdom is all about You see, the gospel that Jesus preached, the good news that he went about proclaiming throughout the region of Galilee and Nazareth, can be best described in the chapter before uh, the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 4, here is the description of Jesus' gospel. It says, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The central message that Jesus went about preaching is found right there in Matthew four seventeen. Repent, because the kingdom of God has come near. And I know it might seem strange to us, especially if you've been in church world for very long. You know the idea that that the gospel that's preached is really all about a kingdom. But this is this is what Jesus was all about. He, uh, the kingdom of God, as described by Dallas Willard, is the range of God's effective will, where what He wants done. Is done and so everything that Jesus says and does in the gospel serves to explain this life the true the real the good and the beautiful life that God invites all of us into life in the kingdom of God and this is really at our core what all of us are longing for We need something that's true. In a world of spin and half-truths and manipulation, we need to receive something that is true and verifiable and certain. But truth alone is not enough for us. We need something that is real. We need to know that what is true will also correspond to our personal experience. We need something real to grasp onto when the world feels like it's spinning out of control or we just can't seem to make sense of everything. We need something that works. And not just the real, we also need the good. What is true and real must also be good for it to be good news, right? And this, is, and, and this is why we need not only good news, but we need good messengers to carry the good news. It matters not just the content of the message, but the messengers themselves, that they're impacted and affected and flavored by the goodness of the truth that they proclaim. And finally, we need the beautiful. That which is true and real and good must also be beautiful. It must must inspire awe and transcend all of the things that we take for granted. Truth, reality, goodness, and beauty. And these things always are meant to point us beyond ourselves to something bigger. When we try to find these things, these elements of truth and reality and goodness and beauty within ourselves, we always end up coming up short we all carry within us hints of it because we're made in the image of god but absolute truth and ultimate reality and uncorrupted goodness and ever-increasing beauty is meant to draw us away from ourselves and up to that which can only only that which can satisfy which is god himself and so the life that jesus is depicting in the sermon on the mount this kingdom-shaped life it seeks to point us to sort of these four core longings that each of us have. And it locates all of these longings in the person of Jesus. The life that is true and real and good and beautiful, it ends up looking upside down to, uh, to the expe- expectations and values of the world around us. And this is what the Bible calls shalom, a life of true flourishing. Dallas Willard says it this way. He says, Jesus offers himself as God's doorway into the life that is truly life. Confidence in him leads us today, as in other times, to become his apprentices in eternal living. Those who come through me will be safe, he said. They will go in and out and find all they need. I have come into their world that they may have life and life to the limit. So to be a Christian to follow Jesus is to become an apprentice in eternal living. We are all learning how to live in his kingdom under the rule and the blessing of God. And so while the Sermon on the Mount is not Jesus' only teaching on this subject, it is the most comprehensive description in the Gospels of what the the life of a disciple ought to look like, what God's kingdom is really meant to, to, to be like. It's kind of like the constitution of God's kingdom. It's the greatest sermon that was ever given. And we've walked through it slowly week by week over the last few months. And here we are coming to a close. And in chapter seven, Jesus is drawing his sermon to a close and notice how he does it. He doesn't tell like a heartwarming story that's meant to lift your spirit. He doesn't uh, recite a poem or give sort of an alliteration of three points that all start with the same letter. Uh, He doesn't whip everyone up into an emotional frenzy. He doesn't do an altar call. There's no every head bowed and every eye closed. No, instead, Jesus finishes out his sermon with three warnings, which is a really unusual way to end a sermon, right? And the the first two warnings we looked at last week, the first was about two paths that are set before us, a narrow path and a wide one, and we are called to the narrow path of discipleship to Jesus. And then in the second warning, Jesus warns us to not be seduced by false teachers who, are, who look like sheep but are really wolves dressed in sheep's clothing, looking to seduce followers of Jesus away from him. Which brings us to today's teaching, the final warning, which is found in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 29. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up so you can see the words there on the page, and we'll read together. Jesus says... and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowd were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. So Jesus, we just come to you right now, uh, and we ask that you would speak to us through your word. That the scriptures that are laid out before us lord we pray that you would instruct us and correct us and teach us and encourage us lord we love you so much jesus amen so as jesus draws his sermon to a close he calls his disciples to hear his words and to put them into practice the greek phrase here for puts them into practice is a single word it's poeo so i think i'm saying that right poeo This word can be translated as does them or practices them, acts on them, works on them, obeys them, all of those kind of uh, ideas. And in the Sermon on the Mount, this word shows up 22 times, 10 of which occur in these three warnings in Chapter 7. And in all three of these warnings, Jesus is saying that there's one key thing that is central. It's the idea of poeo, of practice. The point is that for Jesus, it's not enough to just hear or even to agree with his words. To actually experience the abundant life in the kingdom of God, we have to practice them. We have to do them. So there are two elements that Jesus points out here the first is to hear his teachings, and then the second is to put them into practice. Very simple, the sermon today. Jesus assumes that I cannot obey Jesus unless I first learn what he says. I can't just intuit a life in the kingdom. My fallen flesh, my fallen nature, will always veer me away from the abundant life that God has designed us for. And so we live in a time where the way of Jesus is often oversimplified into a vague and toothless morality, something to the effect of just try to be loving and accepting of other people, be nice to others. But the actual teachings of Jesus are not vague and toothless. They are razor sharp. They are powerful they are subversive and if we wish to actually become these revolutionaries that jesus invites all of his disciples to be we need to first deeply learn all of the sermon on the mount all of his teachings because we are undermining the kingdom of self and we are establishing a new kingdom the new kingdom of god and so when jesus is summarized as one of many roads it reveals that the speaker, whoever says those, those words, doesn't understand what Jesus actually teaches. And that's why, as his disciples, we give ourselves to a rigorous study uh, 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 and, and internalizing every word that he speaks. We need to learn, we need to hear, we need to be listeners and receivers. And so, knowing Jesus' teaching, as difficult as it is, is only the first part of the equation. It's not enough to merely know his teachings. It's not enough to be able to merely quote the words of Jesus to other people. We must also put them into practice. We must poeo, hearing and doing, listening and practicing. And to illustrate this concept, Jesus paints a picture of two builders who construct houses on two different types of foundations. Now, if you grew up in the church hearing this story, you may feel a sense of over-familiarity. Like, I can still picture the flannel graph from Sunday school. Anybody with me? Um, I can still, like, I've had that song stuck in my head all week. You guys know what I'm talking about? The wise man his house the You get it. Um, But but we need to to be careful not to miss the potency of Jesus' warning. So this is a story of two different kinds of builders. One is called wise, and the other is called foolish. Now, this word foolish is the Greek word moros. It's the word that we get moron from. And it can be translated as stupid or unthinking or dumb. I just just said two bad words in my household in front of my children. Okay, from the pulpit. This is going to confuse things at home. So this parable is not just about good or bad or right or wrong. It's about wisdom or foolishness. It's about being stupid or dumb versus being wise and intelligent. Jesus' commands are not arbitrary, and sin is not a matter of just breaking rules. When we live contrary to Jesus' way, we are not only being disobedient, but we're being foolish. We are falling for the traps that the enemy sets for us to draw us away from God and from a life of flourishing. And the end of this kind of living is what Jesus earlier in the chapter calls destruction. The house that is built, it represents your life. And it's important to understand that this is not just about our spiritual life, but it's about all of our life. The teachings of Jesus and and being sure to practice his teachings is about it's about everything. It's about relationships. It's about finances, vocation, the life of our mind, our emotions, everything. And the wise person builds their life on the bedrock of preaching, of, of practicing Jesus' teachings. Every part of their life is submitted to Jesus. And the foolish person, on the other hand, builds their life on other things, other wasteful things. Maybe there's some little bit of Jesus kind of mixed in there, but, but the foolish builder hasn't actually thought through the foundation of their life, and they just simply kind of float through. They drift through life, taking it a day at a time. They hear Jesus' teachings, maybe even agree with some of the teachings, but for one reason or another, don't live according to the teachings. And maybe for them, they justify it as, this is just a season of life. Like, I'll get serious about Jesus when I'm done with college, Or, hey, when we have kids, that'll be the time where we go back to church and we really invest in that, but for now we're just sort of doing our thing. Um, Maybe they're just waiting to settle down. Maybe they're too busy. Maybe they're just trying to get over the hump to the next career goal. Maybe there's some relationship hang-ups that they just need to get through first, and eventually maybe I'll get to the teachings and practicing the teachings of Jesus. It's not just because a person is evil or uninformed that they choose to build on other things. The thing, the, what the rest of the, of the Sermon on the Mount has taught us is that when we decide to follow Jesus, it is a costly endeavor. It is not something to take lightly. It costs us our time and our priorities. It might cost us a, an ungodly relationship. It may cost a career path or a particular lifestyle. Following Jesus is not for the faint of heart. And here's the thing. In the short run, if you look at these two houses that are constructed, they look Pretty much the same. You, it's only later, it's only when the testing comes that the different foundations are finally exposed. So notice that Jesus' parable, that in Jesus' parable, the same fate befalls two houses. The same rains come down, the same floods come up to both, and the differing fates have nothing to do with circumstance and have everything to do with foundations. This uh, gif is like the perfect description of what life in 2022 in America feels like. Just a dumpster floating down a flood. (laughs) See, Jesus never promises that the house that is built on the rock will be immune from trouble. The promise is that one house will stand through the storms while the others will be crushed by them. It's not if the flood comes, but when the flood comes. Jesus is brutally honest about the reality of trials and difficulties in this life. Even as we live out the teachings of Jesus, even as we receive the blessings of the Beatitudes, the truth is that life is going to be hard. As the great philosopher, the dread pirate Robert said, life is pain, Highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something. I thought that would get a little bit more, okay. The way of Jesus doesn't lead us out of hardship, but rather through it. And sometimes the hardship, it hits you, you know, like it really hits you in the gut, like at the core of your life and everything feels discombobulated and ruined and a wreck. Sometimes it's a little simpler. Maybe sometimes hardship hits you when you're on vacation. Almost always on my vacation, by the way as many of you know. A few years ago, Carly and I, we took a vacation to Kauai for our 10 year anniversary. We were so excited about it. We had been planning for years. We'd been saving for like three or four years, had everything planned out. It was going to be perfect. This first picture is the first day. Isn't that beautiful? Oh, Kauai, so great. What could possibly go wrong? But 24 hours into our trip, Carly came down with severe stomach pains. And so we ended up in the hospital, and we found out that she had appendicitis and that she needed emergency surgery 24 hours into our trip. And she was 20 weeks pregnant at the time, as they were going to have to uh, operate on her abdomen. It was very scary, and it was horrific timing, right? And so then that second night, she finishes surgery. They, she woke up from surgery, and they said that she only needed to stay at the hospital for 40 minutes before they could discharge her. Man, Hawaii, it's weird. And so, um, so then we get in the Jeep that we were hoping to go on some cool bumpy roads on. Turns out all of Kauai's roads are bumpy. So we're driving on this bumpy Jeep all the way back to, to the hotel that we're staying at. We're on a second floor. No elevator, got to walk upstairs. Carly is in just excruciating pain. They could only give her ibuprofen because she was pregnant, so it was really rough. We lay down to go to sleep, and then the loudest storm I've ever heard in my life happened outside. It sounded like a pirate war was happening uh, just outside of our windows. And it turns out that that night was the most severe storm in the recorded history of the island, 50 inches of rain, in 24 hours. The rains came down, the floods came up, and our long-hoped-for vacation was destroyed with a great crash. Aaron and Bethany are going to Hawaii in a couple of months, and I really hope that you guys have a better time. (laughs) Now, this storm was so severe that houses were washed down hills, vehicles were carried out to sea. If there was one story of an entire herd of beefalo cattle had been like washed away out into the ocean where they drowned. And the good news, and, and, and this storm, because of just the runoff and everything that came down the hills, it drove all of the whales and everything else away, all the sea turtles, all of the wildlife fled from Kauai. So we couldn't see anything, except there was one species that did, didn't, wasn't driven away. When that herd of beefalo cattle were, were washed out to sea, uh, sharks swarmed the island. So. Enjoy the brown, mucky beach with swarming sharks while your wife is recovering from surgery. Now, this this flood was a tragic event. And thankfully, miraculously, no one died in the flood. But communities were devastated, and we ended up having a front row seat. Foundations were tested by the storm, and much was destroyed. And this is the image that Jesus gives to describe the thoughtless life, the go with the flow life, the wide path. Everything seems fine until the storm hits. Entire communities are destroyed and vacations are ruined. So if you build your life, poor me, right? If you build your, we're going to take an offering at the end of the <laughs> message today to redeem my vac- just kidding. I'm kidding. If you build your life on the teachings of Jesus, you will be able to weather any storm is what he says. But if you build your life on anything else, whether it's greed, or competition, or popularity, or beauty, or comfort, or youth, or adventure. You may be fine for a while. You may have some really awesome photos on your social media following that. But in the end, the foundation will be revealed with a great crash. And most of us have seen this played out, right, in the lives of those around us, maybe even in our own life. There are many who walk away from Jesus uh, as soon as the storm hits whether it's a crisis of faith, the end of a relationship, the betrayal of a spouse, the diagnosis, uh, the death or sickness of a loved one, a miscarriage. And when these horrible storms befall their life, their faith crumbles, revealing the foundation that they had built upon. And so the warning from this parable is stark and should not be be rushed beyond. We shouldn't rush past it in overfamiliarity. Again and again and again, we see the truth of this parable played out in the lives of people around us. People flaming out under the pressure of real life difficulty, and sometimes it's not even a major catastrophic event that crashes the house—that uh, crashes the house down. Sometimes it's just the slow drip, drip, dripping that gradually erodes our faulty foundation. Sometimes it's the persistent blowing of the wind that tears the house apart one piece at a time. And we've seen this with people that we're close with, right? The slow eroding of the foundation of their faith, the drift that leads to the crash and ultimate destruction. And so Jesus is is calling us to be vigilant about the foundation of our faith because the storms are coming. That is guaranteed. And in contrast, consider the person who actually lives out to the best of their ability. They practice the Sermon on the Mount, who give themselves to everything that Jesus was teaching. Teaching People who resist anger and bitterness and judgment and malice, and instead live out sacrificial enemy love, extending grace like God does. People who are not worshippers of money, but instead live very simply so that they can be extravagantly generous. People who are not seduced by the bondage of lust and adultery, but instead uh, control their desires, submitting them to Jesus and live in fidelity in all of their relationships. People who are consistent even when nobody else sees, being faithful to meet with God in the secret place. People who put their confidence in God and not in circumstances and who resist the pull of fear and worry and anxiety. These people, are free. Even when the storm comes, these people are solid. This is what Jesus called the narrow, lo- narrow road that leads to true, abundant life. Have you ever known someone like that? Like, can you think of somebody like that in your mind right now? People who you can tell are strong and solid and unshakable. I greatly admire these people. When I look at Stephen Lane Fish, I am inspired. I know that many of us are. They are solid Jesus people. They hear from God. They are unshaken by circumstances. They are obedient to scriptures over years and years and years of faithfulness to the Lord. And most importantly, they know Jesus, like deeply and personally. They really know him. Their life isn't merely built on a philosophy or an understanding of Jesus, but an intimate relationship where they hear his voice each and every day. And I have watched them walk through some very difficult storms in their life. I've had a front row seat to a couple of them, and they were hard. But through it all, Steve and Lane were resilient. And this is where Hebrews 13 commands us says, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And so when I look at Steve's life, it's one that I desire to imitate. Sometimes we read the commands of Jesus, and it's hard to know how to actually flesh them out in our our world today. Like, we're facing very different circumstances. We have difficult choices. And it's hard to ask, what would Jesus do? Because I'm not totally sure. Jesus lived in a totally different time and place. So then we need to go down a step on the ladder. And we look at people like Stephen Lane. Or we look at my in-laws, David and Janice. Or we look at our friend Jeff Tatarski. We look at Kevin and Rebecca. We look at all of these, I mean, I I could list everybody in this room. To be honest, we look at these people and we can ask the question, well, what would Steve do? Steve is a man who built his house on a rock, and I want to build my life like that. So I may not understand how Jesus would act in this situation, but I right now can look at how he would act in this situation, because I want an unshakable foundation like him. And so this final warning, it goes out to the entire crowd. It's not just for the spiritual elite. It's not reserved only for pastors and leaders or the educated or those who have followed Jesus for a long time. This is for everyone. This is for you and me. By nature of the fact that you are sitting here today or that you're watching online this morning, you are now implicated by Jesus. And the warning for you is that if you hear these words and you do not put them into practice, Jesus calls you a fool. Like, harsh, right? Jesus, the one who loved you and died for you, would look at your life and say that this is foolish. A lot could be said about my life. I have embarrassed myself more than I ever want to admit. Lord knows I've embarrassed my mom, who's sitting here in the front row right now. I'm not the smartest person, or the most talented, or the most successful, but my aim in my life is to not be this fool. The goal of my life is to be a wise builder who hears the words of Jesus and puts them into practice because Jesus calls that success. He says that if you wanna know what true success in this life is, it's that. It is hearing and practicing. Now, if we leave here today and we just decide, okay, great pep talk, Marshall, Uh, I'm going to hear and practice Jesus' ways, like, I'm just going to do it tomorrow. From here on out, I'm going to do all of Jesus' teachings. Uh, That's not something that you can just decide to do. You'll probably last, you know, like a solid hour tomorrow if you tried that. Instead, what we are invited into is a life of focused, disciplined training. Jesus calls us to two things. He calls us to hearing and practicing. We need to hear the words of Jesus every day. We need to immerse ourselves in his teaching morning by morning because his teachings do not come naturally to us. His teachings are against the grain. And in our lives, we are surrounded by a cacophony of noise. Other voices are constantly trying to drown out Jesus in order to get us to serve their purposes, whether it's to consume or, I mean, probably just to get you to consume, right? And these other voices have a massive effect on our ability to live the Sermon on the Mount lifestyle. If you are giving yourself to a 30-minute sermon once a week, but you are mainlining 45, or sorry, four hours like is the average American of cable news, you can't tell me that you're not going to be affected by that. Instead, it is crucial that we are ingesting and taking in Jesus' teachings constantly. But it's not enough to just hear Jesus' words, we also need to obey them this idea of practice. Now, notice that Jesus doesn't say, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and, put, uh, and, and perfectly executes them, perfectly obeys them, uh, who nails it on the first try. No, that's not Jesus' command. He says simply to practice. A life of discipleship is a life of practice. It's daily taking small steps to become more and more like Jesus. And I believe that there are three key elements for living as Jesus' disciples. A while back, I was praying, uh, and God put this little saying in, in my head, and I've been chewing on it ever since. And I think that these three things are really crucial. As disciples of Jesus, we are to live under the authority of God's word by the power of the Holy Spirit in the beloved community. These are the three gifts that we have been given to help construct our lives on the right foundation. The first is the authority of God's word. In verse 28, we see, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. The crowds were amazed by the authority of Jesus. He spoke from an authority that was different from the rest of the teachers of the law. And so we, as his followers, need to come under the authority of Jesus. We must surrender to him and to his teachings. We're called to immerse our minds in the word of God. Every single day, we need to open our Bibles and take in Jesus' teachings, even if it's just a little bit at a time. And I know that that's not always easy, but this is the first step that we are invited into as his disciples. The key to being formed into the likeness of Jesus is to learn Jesus' words. How can you do what Jesus teaches if you don't know what he teaches? And so when we open our Bibles and we take in these words, there's power to live this kingdom life day by day. But also we should come under the authority of the words that Jesus speaks by the Holy Spirit to us. Like when you get an impression during a time of prayer um, or a burst of insight while you're reading scripture or you receive a word of prophecy from a trusted source in your community, what do you do with it? I mean, the first thing is we need to test it according to the Word of God, but we also need to believe that these these encouraging words or these insights that God gives us from His Word are not meant to just sort of be momentary inspirations or prophetic inevitabilities. They are invitations to actually practice the words of prophecy that we are given, right? So how many of you can think of a word that somebody spoke over you or that the Lord spoke over you at one point that you're like, oh, I never did anything with that? Jesus calls us to practice them, to obey them. Which leads us to the second thing, the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. We have been given God's abiding presence in the Holy Spirit. And you know us as a church, we are Holy Spirit people. And this is more than just being zapped by God during an altar call, you know, at a conference, although we love those moments, those experiences are awesome, but it's about an ongoing relationship with God. It's the daily spending time in God's presence through prayer and worship. It's recognizing the moments of temptation and calling out to Him and asking for the Holy Spirit to give you strength to resist. It's inviting the conviction of the Holy Spirit to lead you into repentance when you see that your life has veered uh, uh, and is becoming more sandy in its foundation. The Holy Spirit, God's empowering presence, is available to each one of us every day if we simply learn to practice His presence, learning to become aware of Him throughout our day. Which leads us to the third thing, and we're going to be drawing to a close here. We are called to do this life alongside other people, the beloved community. We cannot do this alone. We need each other. We need to share our lives with other people. We need to learn how to follow Jesus in our day and age in community. And I think that I think that most people overemphasize sort of the idea of a personal relationship with Jesus. So much so that we go to church to hear a sermon that gives us some tips for how we can better just sort of do our own private thing the next day. Maybe we read a book, you know, maybe we listen to a podcast. We're just looking for some some insight on how to do this as an individual. But that's not how Jesus does it. Jesus modeled that real discipleship happens in proximity to other people. And so who are the people that you are doing life with? Who are the people that you are sharing this journey with? Who are the people who show up to help you build your foundation in the right space? Who call you out in the spaces that the foundation is a little bit too sandy? This is a lost art in our individualistic society, but I believe that God is calling us, Vancouver Vineyard Church, to recapture the importance of gathering together in a scattered world. And so we're actually gonna be spending a lot of time diving into that in September. That's what our sermon series is gonna be all about in September is how we can be this beloved community together. Sound good? All right, amen.